certainly you look at a high volume center team and, and the way that they function, uh, it's impressive. And it's an impressive machine that requires a lot of oiling, a lot of practice. And we knew that we didn't have the numbers uh, to achieve that, but we aspired to it. Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. How do you create a high-functioning team that is prepared for clinical scenarios that you might not see that often? In this episode, we had a great conversation with Dr. Sam Miner on this topic. Dr. Miner is a general surgeon in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and he has developed in-situ trauma simulations that help not just residents, but also the staff surgeons themselves prepare for major traumatic injuries. Dr. Miner also tells us what it's like to practice in Halifax and about some of his other research interests. Yeah, I grew up in a small town, Ontario, um, you know, Northern Hick boy, uh, Peterborough, Ontario, the home of the Peterborough Peets and uh, home of the highest lift lock in the world. And uh, I'm sure the first question you're having is what is a lift lock? It's really not that important, but it is the tallest one in the world. So that's what distinguishes us in Peterborough. And uh from there, I did uh, university at the University of Guelph, and uh, that was just uh, simply following my best friend and a girl that I really liked. Um, so uh, that turned out pretty good. She ended up uh, marrying me. From there, I went to uh, University of Toronto for med school, and uh, then I went to Queens for general surgery. And at that time, uh, you could sort of combine. A critical care fellowship with your residency. So I ended up signing on to my fellowship in critical care in my third year and then sort of bundled all my elective time in my fourth year towards critical care. And then uh, what that meant was I was able to shave an entire year off of my critical care fellowship. And so I finished uh, sort of a combined critical care general surgery uh, training after six years. And uh, then, you know, it's, I, I very much wanted to be in academic medicine. That was a, a big goal of mine. And uh, I'll tell you what an experience uh, for anyone that goes through that. It, it's daunting because really when you get down to it, there's for an English speaking person uh, that doesn't have French, uh, you know, you only have 12 places in the country that uh, are potentials. And it's all a matter of timing. Uh, you know, and for me, I was looking for two jobs. You know, I wanted to continue operating and being a general surgeon. So trying to find a position for a general surgeon without surgical fellowship training, that was a challenge. And uh, a spot in critical care medicine was a tall order. And uh, as it turned out, you know, the only places where there was even potential for work uh, was Halifax. And uh, there might have been some opportunities 
in Edmonton or Winnipeg uh, that didn't really get fully realized. I'd been having, at least there was, it wasn't a full no uh, in the discussions, but I went right across the country and uh, it was actually my wife that she, she grew up in Toronto, but she would get carted off every summer to Newfoundland and her entire family identifies as a Newfoundlander. That's where all her relatives and, and so on came from. So when she had the opportunity to go back out east, uh, there was a, a big pull for that. And uh, it just all worked out. So uh, for the last 14 years, I've been an East Coaster. I've been here longer than anywhere, really. Uh, but I will always be considered a, a CFA, which is a come from away. Unless you're born and raised here, you're never entirely an East Coaster. But uh, we enjoy it very much here. And uh, that's the story. I love it. I love it. You, you know, I did just to geek out on this topic here for a minute, because it, it does bring us back around to medicine in some ways. I, I was reading a book about the building of the Panama Canal and how central that was. And initially, I guess there was a French influence in, the, in that. They, they owned that land and, and uh, they had tried to build that canal for years and they lost so many workers, like essentially all of their workers to malaria and other infectious diseases. They just wanted to offload it. So they sold it for next to nothing to obviously the, the eventual uh, uh, landowners south of us who finally built that. But it's, it's unbelievable, you know, some of these engineering feats that we see around the world and the impact that infectious disease has on their ability to get done and uh, the duration of it too. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the Panama Canal story is fantastic. Uh, interestingly, the whole lift-lock analogy is a nice little teaching point in critical care medicine. It's uh, the role of PEEP in uh, managing air trapping and airflow obstruction. Now, they call it the waterfall effect, but whenever I teach it, I call it the lift-lock effect. You know, Sam, your your pathway to to your job is interesting, and it reminds me a little bit of Andy Kirkpatrick. He did very much the same thing in his surgical residency to to achieve that critical care uh, fellowship and and shorten his training. You have a lot of passions and a lot of talents. You're, you know, you're you're um, you're in a lot of different areas. But I'm curious if you could talk to us a little bit about your passion and talent in particular for simulation. What how do you define simulation? What does it mean to you? Um, and how have you applied it in your in your practice? Thanks, Chad. It's uh, yeah, um, I have spent quite a lot of my uh, educational focus on simulation and uh, continue to do so. Um, both uh, surgical uh, using um, uh, surgical grade cadavers. We have an amazing cadaver program on the East Coast and uh, the cadavers are prepared in a very specialized way. It's becoming more common now, but when I first got here, I think um, the uh, uh, anatomy team we had uh, was really front runners in this, at least in uh, Canada. And they have a process by which uh, the cadavers maintain their tissue um, elasticity you know, when I did anatomy in first year medical school, they, they were plasticized and uh, tissues dissected out. I mean, we used the back end of the scalpel just to sort of like chisel away or, or basically liquefy the tissue to leave the important structures to learn from. Um, the surgical grade cadavers 
cut and uh, maintain tissue integrity just like a real human body. Uh, the only thing they don't do is bleed, although we have developed models to even make them bleed in certain contexts. So they are really quite amazing. And uh, so I've definitely taken advantage of that. Our residents have uh, greatly benefited from this program. And so that is one aspect of simulation that I, I've put a lot of time into. Um, from an ATLS standpoint, it's it's been amazing uh, teaching. Uh, that's where uh, how we teach all our ATLS courses now is using surgical grade cadavers. But we also uh, have the Simman 3G, and uh, use that more for uh, critical care stuff and uh, resuscitation, crisis resource management. Um, we do run the general surgery residents through it, sort of doing trauma scenarios and decision-making using crisis resource management. Uh, so uh, I have uh, quite a bit of experience uh, in that uh, regard as well. Um, you know, in terms of the role of simulation, I I've really always thought of it as uh, yeah, anyone who's done high-level sports knows that you have to practice, practice, practice. You know, the reality is, is that we have to practice. When you're first starting off with a skill, you have to practice even more. And uh, one can argue, even as a staff, you know, should we be practicing if our volumes aren't sufficient to maintain a high level of performance? And uh, certainly uh, that simulation gives you that opportunity. It uh, also allows you to do it in a way that's consequence free. I, I, when you talk to the lay person, they're just fascinated by this idea that you could have someone in their first year cutting them. And by fascinated, I, maybe the better word is horrified. And by uh, using simulation, getting them over the hump, I really think has uh, been an essential tool in advancement in medical education. And it's something that I see will continue to evolve uh, for those obvious reasons. Um, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I think one of the interesting things that I, that I like about your simulation work has been some of the emphasis on some of the non-technical skills, particularly the, the work that you've done around in situ trauma simulations. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what an in-situ trauma uh, simulation is? So first of all, just to place the context, uh, Halifax uh, is uh, designated by ourselves, not by any sort of accreditation, uh, but we call ourselves uh, a level one trauma center. Um, we are the only uh, level one trauma center in Atlantic Canada. And uh, even the eMERGE is called, you know, trauma center. Uh, but the reality is, is that our volumes are very low. And uh, we do about one major trauma a day. And uh, really, that is not enough to maintain your skills. It's not enough to be a well-oiled machine. And, you know, certainly you look at a high volume center team and, and the way that they function. Uh, it's impressive and it's an impressive machine that requires a lot of oiling, a lot of practice. And we knew that we didn't have the numbers uh, to achieve that, but we aspired to it. And so uh, in order to increase our uh, ability, uh, we adopted this insight you uh, program. Uh, 
Um, and basically, we just uh, activate a trauma uh, completely the normal way that we would do. Uh, but when the team gets there, uh, it's Sinman 3G instead of a patient. And we run it uh, with the seriousness that we would run an actual trauma. Um, and uh, then at the end of it, we do a thorough debrief with all members of the team, uh, everyone from RT, nursing, residents, staff, paramedics, they all get to talk about what they just did from their own perspective and share it with a team. And that's where it's very much more powerful. I feel like the bang for the buck of doing an insight to trauma with that 20 minute debrief is maybe worth 10 actual traumas in terms of the learning that occurs. I, I also feel that it uh, contributes a lot to team building and in, in the sense that we are all working together and understanding each other's perspectives that uh, would typically only come from doing this so many times a day over and over and over together. I feel like we bump ourselves up on the curve. The other thing about Incite You and doing it in the actual environment with the actual people and the actual team is that from a system and equipment standpoint, you really get to suss out some major details in terms of latent safety errors. And that's been extremely powerful for us as far as a QA uh, tool. On average, we're identifying about six major potential safety errors uh, of simulation, especially when we first started. And then what we would do is put that into the uh, QAQI loop. We would try to break down where we went wrong, come up with the solution, and then we would rerun a simulation uh, focused on that particular aspect that was identified to see if we'd fix the problem. And uh, as someone uh, you know, in, in a leadership role there, it's incredibly frustrating how you, know, you, you look at maybe four or five hours of committee work and you know, uh, developing the solution and then you run it and then you realize that, nope, it's still a problem. And so then you gotta figure out, well, why didn't it work and uh, redo it again. And on average, it took us about three times before it sort of went away and consistently went away. Every now and then when we had identified one of those, we would incorporate it into a scenario, maybe two or three down the road and see if it was still holding up. But I really feel that uh, for a center our size, it's, uh, you need to be constantly on this stuff. Uh, I think there's good evidence out there that if you just leave it alone, uh, eventually it will disappear and it will resurface uh, because of the same attitudes and maybe issues right at the very, very root that led to the problem being uh, created in the first place. And maybe that's something that you just can't get out, sort of like weeding your lawn, you know, uh, you just got to be constantly at it unless you want it to uh, come back. You know, you know, Sam, one of the, one of the amazing things I think about our, our emergency general surgery or ACS and trauma communities, whatever moniker you'd like to use is, is that uh, we benefit from a, a closeness across the country, like many subspecialties, to be honest, um, that I think is, is tremendously helpful in many, many different ways. And I was, I was curious if you would comment on, on that group and the relationship and the reality that you know, emergency general surgery, no matter what your subspecialty, with the exception of maybe liver transplant, is really what binds all of us together. 
Yeah, it's it's been an amazing experience, Chad. And, um, you know, I really have a, a split feeling on this where uh, emergency general surgery is evolving as a specialty. Uh, it's happening organically and uh, you might want to fight it uh, or you might want to encourage it. Either way, I do believe it's going to happen uh, just on its own volition. Um, but having said that, it is the thing that unites us all. Going in in the middle of the night to a patient who has uh, septic shock and peritonitis, and you decide to take them to the OR uh, without knowing what you're getting into, going in and figuring out the problem um, and, and uh, saving that patient's life. I mean, that for me, is what got me addicted to general surgery. And it's still what excites me and drives me. And whether you're a pedobiliary surgeon or a colorectal surgeon, I still think that that moment uh, is what thrills us and uh, also unites us. And at our center, uh, we still, everyone uh, in the divisions has to do general surgery call. Uh, so we do share that common experience and it's important that we all maintain our, our skills within that. Um, as far as, uh, getting into it as a specialty, uh, that has been an incredibly, uh, uh rich experience for me. The Canadian, uh, acute care surgery group, uh, newly minted as uh, the Canadian Collaborative on Urgent Care Surgery, or CANUCS, which is just about the most brilliant acronym ever, uh, has been an incredible uh, professional and personal development for me. Uh, just an amazing group uh, full of incredible characters uh, and all working collaboratively to uh, generate some great research and further our understanding in this uh, burgeoning field. And it's very exciting to, to be involved at this time. I really feel that we're similar to the way trauma surgery was maybe 30, 40 years ago. And uh, I think the potential for its development is very similar. So uh, it, it's just been a great group to be part of. And uh, it's great to have these friends and colleagues from across the country to uh, share with. I'd like to switch gears a little bit if, if, if you're okay with it and talk about what it's like to actually practice medicine and live as a family um, you know, on the, on the East Coast or the, the Maritimes, so, so to speak. Um, I don't think it's a secret, you know, Amir and I are from pretty far west of, of you, but you know, as you pointed out, being an Ontario boy, what, what are some of the, the realities, both fun and maybe not so fun, of, of living in the East Coast? And what are the patients like? How do you think they differ from the rest of the country? Because, I, you know, for those of us that, that live far west, I think we, we come into Halifax and have a great time at a, at a given surgical conference or Maybe some of us, you know, traveled nationally and played hockey when we were younger or, or something to that effect. But um, we certainly hear lots of stories, but I don't think we have a great sense in the rest of the country of what that experience is really like. You know, anyone that uh, comes to Halifax, uh, I think the thing that really defines it 
is if you can make your way down to the lower deck and uh, onto the waterfront there. Uh, it's an incredible vibe, a lot of great live music, great energy, a lot of university students here, tourists, well, used to be. Um, but it, it's, it's just an amazing city in terms of its vibrancy and energy, a lot of fun. Uh, and that's definitely, uh, you know, when I came for my interview here, that was my picture of Halifax and uh, certainly very excited to come here. Of course, you know, just like if I defined Calgary by uh, my experience at Cowboys, you would probably say that that wasn't the uh, typical um, <laughs> way of living in Calgary. But uh, so what is life, you know, day in, day out here? Um, it's a, it's a neat place in that most physicians live right around the hospital um, and uh, walk to work. Uh, most would be within a five to 10 minute drive and choose not to drive most times, ride their bike, whatever. Um, it's a, uh, a very livable city. Uh, you know, if you look at real estate compared to Calgary or Toronto or Vancouver, I mean, it's... Uh, it's very, very affordable. Um, you know, your opportunity as a physician to get some sort of ocean view or something like that is, is not unobtainable. Um, the hospital itself, and now this is sort of getting into the negative aspects, you know, Nova Scotia is a have-not province. Um, it's uh, about a decade behind in terms of trends. So, you know, uh, we just recently gave up on Windows XP and upgraded to Windows 7 on our computer system. Uh, we do not have an electronic uh, chart system or, or anything like that. Uh, they've been talking about it for over a decade. Um, we uh, do handwritten orders. Uh, it used to be not long ago on carbon copy, actually, they got some sort of uh, new system where we got rid of the carbon copy, but it's handwritten notes, handwritten orders. Uh, so everything is about 10 years behind. Um, now, I've been told that that can be a bit of a blessing, uh, all sorts of problems with electronic medical records, and uh, maybe we've avoided some headaches there. Um, the uh, we're a two hospital system that's trying to pretend that we're one. So uh, the hospitals are separated by about 500 meters, I would say. Uh, and you can imagine it's it's quite a headache uh, trying to pretend that it's one hospital with division of uh, services. Uh, you know, one hospital has a blood bank, the other does not. That can be a problem when someone has an exsanguinating hemorrhage. Um, there's all sorts of problems in terms of coordination of care, having patients split between two different hospitals. And then this has been compounded by the one hospital, which is uh, ancient. And it's, it's basically at the point where it's uninhabitable. A uh, couple, well, geez, I think at least now three years ago, we actually had to do a mass emergency mass evacuation of our ICU because of a huge leak in the ceiling above. And I kid you not, 
uh, we have video. It, it was actually like a heavy rainstorm in the ICU, the entire ICU. So you can imagine at one o'clock in the morning, you know, all this water starts to pour out onto all the patients and ventilators and everything. And people are throwing sheets of plastic and plastic bags over the ventilators and just rushing the patients out of there into the hallway, trying to find a warm environment. And we were without an ICU at that hospital for six months or so. And, uh, you know, we, we kept the, basically we had, uh, the environmental engineers, they basically said, well, this space, uh, is, uh, uninhabitable now because everything's wet and mold infection control. And who knows, uh, apparently the problem that caused the leak, uh, wasn't, uh, potentially, uh, repeatable event. And so we were like, okay, we can't come back to the space, but wherever they went, they're like, oh, no, this place was actually condemned 15 years ago. There's asbestos all over this space and so on and so forth. And this went on for several months. And we ended up right back in the same spot that we started. <laughs> but uh, the roof has been blowing off during a hurricane. Uh, my office has been flooded two, three times. All the office furniture is ruined from floods. It's, it's just in a constant state of crisis. So uh, they do have plans to build a hospital. Um, I might be retired before that's done, but uh, that has been a challenging aspect. Uh, but to go back to the good, you know, you have to think of the poop sandwich. Um, the people here are uh, wonderful people. Uh, the patients, uh, you know, I would say on average are extremely grateful. Uh, they, they seem to have more realistic expectations than uh, maybe other extremes uh, within the country. Um, and uh, the environment here, I, I would say is very positive uh, in spite of the challenges. Um, the patients here are big. That's definitely a challenge from a, a surgeon standpoint. We have some of the biggest people in Canada and uh, so definitely I had to up my game in terms of uh, going to the gym and uh, getting my retractor skills going and, and uh, gallbladders. I definitely feel like we could uh, take on the rest of Canada for the worst gallbladders in the country. Uh, that would be a neat contest. Um, so yeah, I sort of rambled on there, but uh, lots to be said about Halifax. I really encourage anyone that's got the opportunity to come. It's a uh, great fun, a uh, great place for a conference. And uh, if you ever think about moving here or want, want to uh, try something different, it's a great place to live and work, raise a family. I did a, a two-week elective in Halifax as a medical student and uh, did some call at, at the main hospital in the infirmary. Can, is it still as crazy as, uh, as it used to be? Like it, it, it almost felt like uh, you would take a year off your life every time you do call there. It was just nonstop, just wall-to-wall uh, -wall action every night. And, and uh, you know, in talking to uh, trainees who have graduated there, they all talk about the same thing. Is it still that crazy? Um, and is there, is there any sense that uh, that's going to get better? Yeah, it's, uh, you know what, I think I, we call it our acute care surgery service, we call surgery E. And uh, to be honest, I think it's our crown jewel. Um, it's, uh, it is very busy, uh, you know, uh, in doing uh, the study uh, that Kelly Voigt did. Um, you know, we have the data to show that we're one of the busiest acute care surgery services in the country. 
Um, it is a, just a machine, 24-7. Uh, it's very well resourced. We have our own OR uh, every day, uh, 7.30 to 5, and uh, we keep it busy. Uh, it's, it's got very good utilization. Uh, most weekends, you're operating most of the weekend as well. Um, it's, uh, it can be a real challenge uh, for the residents. And again, it's this two-hospital model. The entire division is actually over at the other hospital. And so we man it with one surgeon. Uh, and often as the staff surgeon, you're in the operating room most of the time. So uh, what that means as a senior general surgery resident, you're in charge of running traumas, of seeing uh, all the consults, of manning the floor. And so the, you know, I just finished a week there. We had 40 inpatients six off-service consults we were following, and just a full OR day every day, and then, you know, covering trauma uh, whenever it came in. Um, so it's really where our residents cut their teeth. It's trial by fire. Um, it can be a sink or swim experience, but for those who manage to swim, uh, I think it's one of those things that they look back on their training and feel like that's where they made huge leaps forward in becoming a true surgeon. Um, you know, uh, Andrew Beckett, who's uh, now at St. Mike's, uh, I, you know, I think he looks back on that experience. He fondly, he uh, comes from a military uh, background and he created this big sign that still hangs there to the day, uh, beautifully done, but it's, it looks just like from uh, the show MASH and it says surgery E best care anywhere because it really does just feel like a mash unit. You recently published a report about using antibiotic beads in conjunction with a biologic implant for, for hernia repairs. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Uh, what got you started on this? As a general surgeon without a surgical fellowship, uh, how do you contribute to your division? Uh, I've basically taken on abdominal wall reconstruction as my surgical subspecialty, uh, as many people in uh, critical care and acute care surgery have. And, uh, uh, you know, it's really been an interesting area to be in. I love the problem solving and uh, all the options that are available for these massive hernias. And uh, particularly, I've developed an interest in hernias with contaminated fields. So these are patients that are presenting with infected mesh that needs to be explanted. And uh, then you have to find some way to restore abdominal integrity after you've pulled out this 20 by 30 centimeter mesh. Um, patients who have uh, fistulas with uh, the mesh uh, that they have eroding into their bowel. Um, or patients who have uh, stomas and you're not really certain that you're gonna be able to keep the abdominal wall clean when you're implanting your device. Um, so uh, the infection rate is quite high, um, although extremely variable. When you look at the literature, and this is one of the things that's so difficult about hernia surgery is, is that you don't know what's real and the uh, margins of what's being reported are all over the place. 
but when you sort of average it all out, you know, the, this group of uh, patients with um, contaminated wounds, you know, you should be looking at about a, a 25% rate of uh, wound infection. And uh, obviously, if the mesh gets infected, this can be a real problem, especially, you know, having done a component separation and placed a large uh, foreign material in there. So um, this uh, product, which is calcium sulfate antibiotic beads, uh, you can basically imbibe it with any antibiotic that you want. You just mix it in with the powder. And uh, I use gentamicin as my binding agent. Uh, along with powdered vancomycin. So I have gram-negative, gram-positive coverage. And uh, it was originally developed for use in uh, infected bone and infected bone implants. Uh, then there are some reports of uh, some vascular surgeons trying to salvage infected vascular grass with it. Some plastic surgeons have uh, salvaged some, um, some uh, breast implants with it. And so I was like, well, you know, like uh, hernia mesh is really not that much difference. So uh, why don't we start using it uh, in that scenario? And uh, so we're building our, our data set with that. Um, it looks preliminarily, it looks favorable, uh, small numbers. But uh, I think in our paper, we were reporting around a, a 10%. So, you know, this is the problem. It's, uh, it's all trying to look at very messy data uh, in, in terms of the literature about what our baseline should be. And then having small numbers, which, you know, when you're looking at uh, large abdominal wall reconstruction, the setting of contaminated fields, all the data, all the studies are small numbers. So we uh, suffer from the same issue. Uh, it's hard to know if, if we are actually onto something or not, uh, but to be honest, I don't think you'll ever really get to a randomized control trial uh, for this type of patient. But, um, you know, for minimal cost and uh, for what looks like a possible good effect, the one thing I can definitely say is that we haven't seen any uh, concerning complication. In fact, I haven't seen any complication whatsoever. These beads dissolve after uh, six weeks. Uh, we've done uh, post-op levels on all the patients and uh, they have minimal systemic absorption. Uh, so, you know, uh, just from the philosophical standpoint, you've got absolutely nuclear levels of antibiotics locally on the craft, which is what I'm trying to prevent uh, mesh explantation from and uh, no systemic absorption. So uh, for my peace of mind and the, the minimal cost associated with it, uh, I think I can make an argue in the absence of uh, good science that we may never get. But uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a real interest of mine. So just to be clear, like these beads are um, uh, incorporated into the mesh or how, how does it actually logistically look when you're- Yeah, when you're so- uh, during the operation, you, you, you make the beads themselves. So it just comes as the powder and you throw in some vancomycin powder and you pour in the gentamicin liquid and you stir it all up. And uh, there's great buy-in from the surgical team. It sort of feels like I'm in a Betty Crocker uh, kitchen and everyone likes the baking and you, you put it into the mold. And in about 10 minutes later, you're popping out these nice little beads. I put about half the beads on top of the mesh 
and uh, then I put the other half within my um, subcutaneous spaces where I, I do an external component release for the really big hernias. And uh, so I, I put them in my lateral release area where there's uh, quite a bit of undermining the subcutaneous tissue. Sam, I'm just curious, have you ever used them in the context of synthetic mesh as opposed to just biologic? Yeah. Um, so I've actually, uh, I, we, we published a case report in the Journal of Hernia where we used it to salvage a piece of infected polypropylene. And so we've done, we've pulled that stunt off three times now. So, you know, that's evidence, uh, but it is an option. Um, and what we do in that situation is uh, we just debride the piece of mesh that is like, you know, just sitting at the skin and completely open uh, mm -hmm. with no tissue over it. Uh, we raise subcuticular flaps, basically sew the polypropylene part that we've cut out together so you don't get a recurrent hernia and then pour these beads on uh, over top and, uh, and then close the skin or back over top. And, uh, you know, these are patients that we were looking at. One lady, she had like two 20 by 30 polypropylenes sewn together. Like it would have just been a massive explantation. And uh, doing this, we were able to get away with not uh, having to explant the mesh. And uh, the other one was uh, a ventrolite mesh. Uh, so, you know, it, Again, you don't lose anything. It's a uh, one OR, not a big OR. Uh, and uh, I think the beads are about a thousand bucks. So uh, it's something, you know, if you're looking just at a bad situation where an explant is gonna be a huge amount of tissue destruction and morbidity, I think it's worth a go. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, when I, when I read your report, I, I thought it was genius. I thought it made so much sense on so many levels. And, Maybe I'd just push you back in an encouraging way. I think you could do a small randomized control trial on this. You know, um, we're just finishing one in in Calgary that's a little bit bigger, just just a well over a hundred uh, hernia patients with the two biologic industry leaders head to head. Um, but I think I think you could probably show a, an effect. I bet you with a lot smaller numbers than that. So food for thought. And, I, <laughs> and you know, and you know what? I don't I don't know what the cost is of of that antimicrobial bead. I'm sure it's not much, but I bet that's something that industry would be supportive of as well. Because if you know, if you really think about it, I mean, that would be a whole entire game changer. There's no doubt. Well, it's funny that you said that because I, I did talk to the company and you know, the interesting thing for them is, uh, so they are not, they, they got approval, Canada Health approval for use in infected bone and infected bone grafts. Right. For them to engage in a study where it's being used in an off-label way, uh, it is an incredible amount of investment on their part to pursue that. So, uh, yeah. Oh, interesting. They, they, they really weren't keen. They're a small company. They don't have a lot of money to, to throw at this thing. But they're very encouraging that I continue on. <laughs> You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.